Hello and welcome to our AIES podcast, Politics on Point. In this special series of four podcast episodes, we will be covering a broad range of different topics relevant to the European Union as a Global Actor Series in collaboration with the Konrad Adenauer Foundation here in Vienna. My name is Nick Nischalke. I'm an associate fellow at the AIS and the host of today's episode on EU-US relations, a solid alliance in a shifting global landscape. In this episode, we will be discussing the role of the US for European security. We'll be looking specifically at how the upcoming presidential elections, as well as Finland's and Sweden's NATO accession, and of course, the war in Ukraine affect transatlantic relations. I'm delighted to welcome our expert speaker for today's episode. Max Bergman is the director of the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program and the Stewart Center in Euro-Atlantic and Northern European Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has previously served in the US Department of State and has authored pieces for various publications such as Foreign Affairs or the Washington Post. Welcome to the podcast, Max Bergman. Thanks so much for having me. Right, let's jump right into it then. How would you assess the emergence of Europe's strategic autonomy? Does the momentum in European collective defense and security efforts have the potential to become independent from the US in the long run? Or do you rather expect the willingness to go back to usual? Well, I think this is this is the, the perennial question. Um, and in my view is that I, I actually think European strategic autonomy should be a goal of, of U.S. policy, uh, in, in part because the United States uh, oftentimes complains, uh, quite rightly, about uh, the lack of European military capabilities, that Europe's uh, d defense weakness and its reliance on the United States and, and the burden that that places on the U.S. military. Uh, and that's going to become, I think, even more acute uh, as uh, the United States looks toward China. And you can sort of feel the kind of focus uh, uh, within within the Washington national security establishment, and particularly at the Pentagon, of the kind of uh, pull of China on all things when it comes to defense. And that will create strain, frankly, on the U.S. military of the need to both deter Russia and focus on this real peer adversary when it comes to China. I, I think the problem for the U.S. is that we don't know what we want uh, Europe to be. Uh, that we, on the one hand, decry European weakness, say, get your act together. And on the other hand, when Europeans start to get their, their act together and say, okay, yeah, wh why don't we figure out a way that we can do military operations uh, in an autonomous way, and talk about strategic autonomy, then suddenly Americans freak out and say, oh my God, they're gonna divorce us and the Transatlantic Alliance is gonna fall apart. And uh, and how awful this, this whole strategic autonomy thing is. And that's because a large part of the US government actually really likes being indispensable to European security, likes uh, Europe being reliant and needing uh, to go to the United States to sort of tell it what to do when it comes to anything defense. We like our privileged position within NATO. Uh, and so we don't want to let that go. And by we, I mean the people who work day to day on European issues. Our, our State Department Foreign Service officers, our, uh, our, our the Defense Department, the, the folks that are in NATO. And it's not that they're, you know, malicious in this. It's that they want the United States to have a central role. That is really what every diplomat is trained to do all across the world. It's just that 
in Europe, I think it hits up against this contradiction of, well, actually, we kind of want the Europeans to be stronger globally and really be able to do things without us. And so it's, you know, the, I, I, I sort of loathe to use this analogy, but it's a bit like you're, you know, you have a kid enter, leaving university and they kind of need to get a job on their own, but you're not going to like let them, you know, be homeless. So you, you keep sort of paying them and there needs to be sort of a way that they can be more autonomous yet still, you know, strengthen the family. And I think that that's where, where we're at in this kind of difficult, uh, difficult conversation. Right. Well, one thing we also have to touch on, of course, is the war in Ukraine. Um, what do you think, what medium and also long-term influence did the war have on US-EU relations? And from the US perspective, to what extent has the aspired NATO membership of Sweden and Finland affected NATO's strategic positioning? Great. Um, well, I think the war in Ukraine uh, came at actually um, an important inflection point in transatlantic relations, um, where if you think about the first year of the Biden administration, um, there was an immediate uh, effort to really highlight to the Europeans that our focus was going to be on the Indo-Pacific, was going to be on China. When Secretary of State Blinken went to NATO for the first time in March of 2021, Uh, I think he mentioned China more than 10 times and Russia just around four times. And it was sending a clear signal to everyone that, no, our focus is on China. In fact, the June, um, you know, Biden's sort of first trip to Europe in June of 2021, uh, where he then has a summit with Vladimir Putin. And the, the talk was sort of parking Russia, uh, that the United States didn't want to sort of minimize the tension in U.S.-Russia relations. They wouldn't call it a reset. I don't think it actually was a reset. It was more of we're too busy trying to get the U.S. government to really align itself when it comes to China. And we just want to sort of minimize the, the danger posed by um, posed by Russia. Uh, and I think that was I think that policy attitude was a total mistake. But you saw Europe being a little bit taken for granted. And that obviously exploded uh, by the French and by AUKUS. Uh, in September. and But then it was just a couple of months later, you then suddenly had the U.S. really refocusing on, on European security. AUKUS, I think, was actually this important trigger where suddenly you saw Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and others recognizing that maybe we hadn't quite paid enough attention to European interests. We were sort of paying lip service to them to some degree. I don't think they would put it that way. Uh, and But we saw a flurry of activity try to rebuild Franco-American relations, which actually was a really good uh, takeoff uh, or provided a good runway, perhaps, for uh, really rebuilding uh, transatlantic relations um, in the run-up to the war. And you saw this flurry of activity prior to the Ukraine invasion or prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I think it's been a real pivot point because what it meant is that Uh, particularly when it comes to working with the EU, because who do you do sanctions with if you're in the United States? It's, you know, somewhat with Berlin, but really it's with Brussels because they have the competencies, they have the, the tools, they have the capabilities to do sanctions. And I think what was very astounding uh, to folks in Washington was how strong the response was from Brussels. 
Uh, I was sat in on a number of the, you know, there's sort of briefings for think tanks, for think tankers um, by U.S. government officials, which are slightly better and more insightful than I think the ones for the press. Uh, and what was clear is that a presumption was that Washington was going to have to pull Europe along to do sanctions. And a lot of memories of 2014 of Russia seizing Crimea, and then no strong European sanctions response came until six months later, until uh, MH17 was actually shot down. Um, and the sense was it was going to be the same. And in fact, it was the exact opposite, where the European sanctions response was incredibly strong. Uh, and then you saw the EU providing new military tools, such as the European Peace Facility, to provide support to Ukraine. And that European uh, response to the war has been quite steadfast. So I think it's been, um, uh, 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 you know, transatlantic relations, it's hard to find another moment where they've been stronger than uh, since the end of the Cold War than they are today. Uh, and that is exemplified by the second part of your question about NATO and Sweden, or about Sweden and Finland uh, trying to join the alliance, Finland now being a member, Sweden hopefully soon. Um, and I think it, what it, uh, you know, highlighted the pivot point that we were here, that having this kind of uh, uh, blind spot in the NATO alliance where what would happen if Russia did try to do some sort of gray zone activity uh, in you know, the island of Gotland, for instance, in Sweden, where there's no Article 5 commitment, uh, what would that mean? And this is something that worried me during the Trump administration, that you're sort of um, getting rid of that blind spot. And I think it what it what it really means is that the greater kind of harmony between NATO and the EU can actually, I think, um, uh, hopefully lead to better, better NATO-EU cooperation uh, overall, uh, but, but really send a signal to Russia that, that this is a very, that Europe is united vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. Right, right. I mean, with all that in mind, though, we have the U.S. presidential elections coming up next year. So what sort of scenarios do you consider conceivable after the elections? Well, I mean, no one knows. Uh, we have, uh, I think, you know, American politics is, is since it's a you know, two-party system, it's always on a knife edge between what party will win and, and the, the two candidates or, or two parties always sort of, you know, if they, it, it's rare that you have a, a blowout now in American uh, politics. So, uh, you know, I think, look, I think there's a lot of concern about, uh, uh, in Europe, about the potential for another Trump presidency. I think the nature of our system means that that is, I think, a justified concern given Trump's attitudes towards transatlantic relations. Um, and I think the Europeans actually, I was sort of surprised during the Trump administration um, I think kind of just put their head in the sands a little bit that the NATO summits became, uh, instead of sort of confronting uh, Trump about some of his anti-NATO or anti-transatlantic rhetoric, tried to avoid the topic. It became sort of like an awkward, as we would describe it, an awkward Thanksgiving uh, dinner with your relatives that you, you know, really try to just get in and get out and, and not talk about politics. And so I think that was, you know, the, the scene setter for Macron's brain death uh, comment about NATO, which I think was actually fairly point that we weren't, we were trying to avoid many of the con controversial topics. Um, so look, I think on the one hand, the Biden, you know, President Biden could be 
in some ways the last transatlanticist president that he is uh, uh, someone that um, came of age in American politics during the Cold War period. Uh, and then, as, you know, in as well as in the 90s, we're focused on Europe's future. And I think, and it's not just on the Republican side, but also on the Democratic side, the attachment to NATO, the attachment to European security, it's just far less. In fact, Ukraine has sort of brought more attention on the potential perils of European security. But this is just not something that the last, you know, if you're, uh, an American policymaker, and then you're in your 40s, what have you cut your teeth on throughout your career? It's been the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, counterterrorism. It has not been the questions of NATO enlargement, right? It has not been a focus on Russia. So, and I and I think that context, uh, uh, you pair that with the focus on the Indo-Pacific, means that I think whoever comes next after President Biden, whether that's next year or four years from now, uh, will have a different attitude toward European transatlantic relations. And so I think what you do see in the Republican Party is a growing kind of resentment to European weakness. Uh, and as we start out the conversation, this kind of, you know, uh, uh, I guess sort of arguments that I don't even think we realize we're having between wanting to be indispensable to European security and wanting Europeans to be uh, essentially strategically autonomous. Well, it's moving not it's moving in the direction of wanting Europe to be strategically autonomous. Uh, that I think is really where the Republican Party, uh, frankly, is uh, or is moving. And I think that's that's sort of what we're kind of not reckoning with. So uh, the good news is that I think whoever becomes president, even if it's Donald Trump, that Europe has the ability, has the tools to ensure that um, that Europe that. Uh, European security, and I think, frankly, to um, to make sure that the NATO alliance can sort of take a next step forward. So I, I don't know what will happen, um, but I do know that Europe is, is actually has the capabilities to handle its own security, to move in that direction. So I'm not sort of worried about the future security of Europe in the sense that if America turns away from NATO, I think that would mean that Europe would really have to move very quickly uh, in a certain direction. If you say that Europe has the sort of tools and capabilities, we have also seen that without the extensive arms deliveries from the US to Ukraine, it would have not been possible to stand up to Russian attacks, let alone counterattacks. And it has become clear that the European arms industry had quickly reached its limits. And you also mentioned China earlier, so sort of tying back to the questions we've discussed earlier, how long will the US continue to provide support in a European war in the light of its uh, strategic pivot to Asia? It's a great question. Uh, and what I would say is I feel much better about it now after actually the, the debt ceiling showdown that we had in Washington, in part because where the Republicans kind of came down was they, it, this, uh, they, they kind of, I wouldn't say back down, but took a more reasonable position and stayed relatively unified in a way that I think if you were to go back to January when Kevin McCarthy was struggling to become Speaker of the House, you would question whether uh, the Republican Congress could do anything, uh, let alone pass a supplemental appropriation for Ukraine, which is what was hap how Ukraine has been funded. Now, there's still questions about whether the House of Representatives will pass new funding for Ukraine. 
that said, um, there's ways to find money within the U.S. budget to continue support. And the good news is that the bureaucratic processes for delivering aid, working through some of the very nitty gritty technical stuff of, well, are we going to provide Ukraine with this advanced weapon? Uh, with something we would not have done probably pre-war. Um, those technical processes and, 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 and discussions have sort of been resolved. So there's a bureaucratic, smooth bureaucratic pathway, as long as there's funding, to move assistance. That said, I think it could get harder. And this is where I think Europeans oftentimes underestimate their own capacity. To be clear, the United States has really stepped up and provided a, 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 you know, the lion's share or a ton of military assistance, but Europe has done quite a bit. And Europe has the capacity to get its defense industries moving. Uh, what we haven't quite seen is the money sort of going to the Leopard 2 tank factories to really pump out production uh, and, and to go all out. We've seen some orders being put in, but really there's still spare capacity. And I think what we need from European leaders in Europe um, is to frankly uh, look at some of its, its own fiscal capacity and mobilize that. Europe can do amazing things. Germany, for instance, it's shocking that Germany was able to get off Russian natural gas uh, in less than a year. No one, you know, energy analysts thought that was not going to be possible. Uh, and this is, I think, sometimes my frustration with with Europeans is that th there's a, 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 an excuse making of, well, it's really difficult. How would we get agreement at a European level? We don't quite have the money. You know, last, last fall, Germany found 200 billion euros to kind of vote mobilize in behalf of its economy. There's Europe is rich. Europe uh, has really has the best bureaucrats in the world that can make stuff happen very quickly. And we see this happen at the EU level all the time. So I think we need some of that energy to go toward a long-term strategy to supporting Ukraine. And I hope that that's frankly what comes out of the NATO summit uh, for Ukraine. You know, there's a lot of talk about membership. Uh, I think it's really a conversation about how do you mobilize resources uh, on behalf of Ukraine. And I think that's where Europe can do it. All right. Thank you very much. I'm glad that we can end this podcast episode on a somewhat positive note, at least. Uh, since we've already reached the time limit of our episode, I would like to say a very big thank you to you, our guest, Max Bergman, for your insightful and interesting responses. So, yeah, thanks a lot for being here. No, thank you so much for having me, and thank you to the Conrad Adenauer Stiftung for, for everything it does uh, around the world. And with that, this has been Politics on Point, and I've been your host, Nick Nischalke.